you know, a good policy is one that is efficient or is cost effective. In today's podcast, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Elizabeth Pop Berman about her new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy, recently published by Princeton University Press. This book is likely of interest to anyone interested in economics, public policy, or just the intellectual foundations of 20th century American social policy. Dr. Berman is an associate professor of organizational studies at the University of Michigan and a sociologist by training, and this is her second book. My name is Scott Cunningham, and this is Mixtape, the podcast. Uh, this is um, really uh, fun to, to, to meet you, Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth Pop Berman, um, uh, thank you for being on the, the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really good to talk to you today. Well, so before we get started, um, can, can you, but talking about uh, sort of the topics of your new book, uh, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality and U.S. Public Policy just came out uh, from Princeton uh, University Press. Before we before we start getting into the the meat of the the book, uh, I was wanting just to kind of learn a little bit more about you and your background, uh, where you grew up, and what your childhood was like. Yeah, uh, so I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, in kind of the middle of nowhere country, you know, very small local place. Uh, and you know, I grew up. My parents were teachers. I grew up on kind of on a farm. Oh. Um, and yeah, and, and it was the kind of place where people didn't really leave a whole lot. So mm. I, um, always kind of, uh, I guess, uh, felt a little bit constrained there and I ended up going to college, uh, at, at Penn in Philadelphia. And that oh. was sort of my, uh, entree into the, into the big city and then, uh, into academia from there, I guess. But, yeah. uh, yeah, but my parents are still there and that's, uh, you know, where we go. It was a small town in Pennsylvania. Is that Very small town. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I bet that was, what kind of stuff did you like doing as a little kid? <laughs> we did 4-H. We had sheep, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I played with my brother because there wasn't anybody else around. So that's yeah. Kind of the... Yeah. Uh, the, the, I grew up in a small town in Mississippi and um, uh, it was like wonderful until you hit like high school and then you're like, oh, there really is nothing to do here. Yeah. 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 No, it's a, like, it's a little bit idyllic in a way, but then you kind of start to outgrow it. You're like, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so your academic career, so you, you at Penn, tell me about Penn. What did you end up studying at Penn? What, what were you interested so in? So I studied sociology from the outset. So, so I was a sociologist as an undergrad too. Um, although I wasn't particularly focused as a, as an undergrad, I just kind of did the major like you do. Uh Um, and then, and then after, uh, after that I went and I worked, uh, for a small foundation for a little bit and decided that I was interested in going back and getting a PhD. And so, you know, so that's kind of when I started to focus my interest in a little bit and, uh, and then I went to Berkeley for a PhD. Yeah. What was it? What were you interested in? What kind of stuff were you interested in as a, as a student in, in college? And how did, how was that different from when you ended up at Berkeley? Yeah, honestly, I think in college, my interests were really scattered. You know, I mean, I guess I, I have always, like there's pieces that are kind of through lines. I mean, I've always had interests in some ways in thinking about, you know, 
broadly how markets are organized and sort of like the cultural oh, yeah. spaces around those, right? Uh -huh. So I don't know. I remember writing a paper as an undergrad, a big paper on, on you know, conditions that like facilitated technological innovation throughout history. But but mm. I've also always had kind of these interests in higher ed and sort of sociology of science and these sort of spaces around like knowledge production too. So that's kind of some of the areas. That, that... So why'd you end up in sociology if you were so interested in markets and not ended up in economics? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think I think the pieces that have of it that have always interested me are more sort of the, you know, the 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 squishy fact, cultural factors around the edges, you know? So like, how do we think about like, what kinds of like, how do we, what are our broad frameworks for thinking about like, when do we want to govern parts of life along market mm -hmm. principles? And when do we want to think along it about doing it along other lines? Right, right. Um, and you know, there was a, like, when I started, you know, I, I when I started graduate school, um, I got very interested in, in like, you know, agent-based models for a while and sort of thought, oh, well, maybe it's sort of like Thomas Schelling kind of models and thought, oh, maybe this is sort of a more formal space that interests me. But I kind of ended up taking more of a historical turn and mm. then just sort of kept mm. following that direction. Right, 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 right. So so in sociology, how do I think about your kind of methodological background? It's like, because uh, it, so it's probably more in the qualitative branch, but not, you're not an ethnographer. So, but, but how would I think about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, comparative historical methods, you know, historical thinking about case studies, sort of leveraging mm. comparisons across qualitative cases, those yeah. kinds of, that's the kind of the broad space that it's in. But yeah, yeah. I'm not an ethnographer either. Right. So what'd you study at Berkeley? I mean, um, like, what'd you specialize in? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it, like, just in terms of, you know, so what were my exam areas? So one was, uh, uh, you know, work in organizations is, was one was one broad area. Um, and or work and organizations, those are two separate areas. Um, and my dissertation, which you know eventually became my my first book, uh, was on um, how academic science became more entrepreneurial. So sort of trying to understand why in the 1970s and 80s, kind of the same time period that that I'm looking at in this book, you know, within universities, uh, people really started to. Uh, to think of academic science as something that could be leveraged for economic purposes and sort of oh. encourage scientists to start to be more entrepreneurial and huh. to you know, start companies, do more industry collaboration. Huh. And yeah, and that kind of like, you know, was sort of in the broad space of things that I was interested in. And there was a lot of, of controversy at Berkeley at the time around these kind of university industry partnerships that were going on. Mm. And, you know, that kind of led me that down that direction and that became a mm. bigger, bigger project. Wow. So you've been really, uh, you, you've been knee deep in this, like, um, this interconnection of, of the life of the mind and economic and like, and markets and economics, like your whole career's kind of had that feature. Yeah. And I think even more than that, you know, that first, that first project, um, you know, a lot of the I didn't go into it particularly focused on the policy side of it, but yeah. I really thought that um, the, the, the actual account of what happened ended up having a really strong policy focus. And so sort of a big piece of the explanation ended up being, well, policymakers, you know, in the late seventies started to really seize onto this idea that, you know, innovation is what drives economic growth. Right. And they made a bunch of policy decisions that were shaped by that. And so right. that really changed the environment that scientists were operating in. And so, 
you know, so I think, so I think in some ways, you know, that's kind of a seed of where this, where this book came from is, yeah. you know, seeing, oh, look at that. You can actually see places where, um, you know, new, new theories about how the world works are really changing the kinds of decisions that policymakers are, are making. Yeah. 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 So the kinds of questions that you've been interested in, is it, so it's like, I, I think about just this idea popped in my head. When you teach the principles, it's called principles of microeconomics, like mm-hmm. your intro econ, uh, you'll, there's like a, a first lecture and a, a lot of the first lecture is the stuff of your book, to be honest, you know, like there, so it's kind of interesting to, to reflect on it. Um, how so much of the thesis of the book, these core ways of thinking are kind of communicated day one, but one of them uh, is the positive normative distinction. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? Yeah. Yep. So, so it, it, I just was, as I was thinking and I, and I wonder, I don't actually know where I'm going with this, but it's so deeply rooted in an economic way of thinking to say, well, there's the positive theory, which is like, this is how the world is described. And there's the normative theory, which is like, this is how we should do things. But deep inside it, there is this, this point of contention because so much of the positive pieces are kind of normative, like things like rational, you know, like the way, like, like uh, that you should take an action if the benefits outweigh the costs. It's a very, it's a subtle nudging that you do to the student. And it's sometimes when you talk about it, you're, you'll catch yourself doing it because you'll, you'll say, this is how the way people are, but then you'll kind of also say, but then they're not always like that and they need to be like that. And I, and I just wondered this economic way of thinking about the positive normative, how has that been, how is it, what do you, as not being an economist, when you see an economist sort of reason that way, what are the salient things that you notice that like an economist is oblivious to maybe? Yeah. I mean, I think to me, like on the one hand, like it totally makes sense as a, as a distinction, right. That, that, you know, if you're thinking about, oh, well, the positive questions are, you know, is, is, is X going to affect Y or, you know, what's the, you know, what's the optimal decision under certain, under certain parameters. Um, And so, you know, so totally get where that's coming from. But, you know, I think in the context of, of the book, you know, one of the things I'm trying to say is that, is that, you know, those, those kinds of, those kinds of positive questions still have norms embedded within them, right? They're not really outside of norms. And like in policy context, a lot of this ends up happening because, you know, the, they, they imply a particular way of thinking about, you know, what is it that is a good policy? And mm-hmm. so, you know, and I think from like a, a micro perspective, you know, a good policy is one that is efficient or is cost effective um, or is, you know, encouraging, uh, you know, markets to function in a competitive way. Right. And, you know, those are all certainly things that you, that you might want to pursue and that are, that are valuable in themselves, mm-hmm. but they are also normative choices. You know, those, right. those themselves are, are preferences and sometimes they're in competition with, with other things that you might want. Right, 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 right. And you're, and so uh, this, you, you, when you sort of interact with, with economics as a field, you can, it it sort of seems kind of obvious, these kinds of things seem kind of obvious in a way that is, is an economist can't see, I guess I'm trying to figure out like, 
what it what is it that keeps the field of economics from not being in your opinion aware of that or talking about that or caring about it about that this that there's this deep level of of value within the system that's just not that within the field that's just not taken serious or not recognized i mean i think in a lot of ways it's just bracketed right and like there's certainly lots of economists who have talked about this over time i mean um you know kind of Folding in the 60s had like a presidential lecture that kind of gets at these questions. You know, Alice Rivlin wrote a bunch of stuff that that sort of really addresses these questions head on. Yeah. So it's it's not like people don't recognize it or that it's it's not understood. But I think it's also easy to bracket, right? You just kind of it doesn't it doesn't really get you further in terms of doing what the main intellectual project is. And so you know you kind of set it aside and say, okay, well. It's just not really that relevant for what we're talking about. And obviously, like you said, there's this other kind of normative positive distinction where, um, you know, there's things that are very explicitly, you know, I don't know what kinds of distributional outcomes do we want or something right. where, where you can really more explicitly separate the normative from the positive. But, you know, so it's not that I don't think that economists don't recognize it. It's just not a center of attention. But I think that also can translate into, um, you know, particularly when you're talking about more applied context, assuming that it's just neutral, right? It's not, it's not normative. It is just sort of a toolkit for making decisions and yeah. doesn't carry any kind of inherent value system within it. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's things in your book, uh, that, I was really surprised by this distinction between, so, uh, I guess, First, I, before we just dive into it for the sake of the reader, could you kind of tell me what the thesis of the book is uh, for someone that hasn't read it yet? Yeah, I mean, so the book is basically trying to do two things. So one is it is just sort of tracking how, you know, what I'm calling, you know, the economic style of reasoning, which is not so much necessarily what PhD economists are doing, but sort of this like broad econ 101 um, kind of very you know, basic way of, of thinking about policy problems. So understanding how that was introduced into policy, like the people who were who were carrying it there, how it spread around, how it actually got um, kind of institutionalized in different places. And that's focusing on the story between, uh, mostly it happened between the 1960s and the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And then the, the second thing that it's doing is really trying to show that this had political effects. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and in particular that, uh, that by centering these sort of subtle normative things that are embedded within thinking about problems in, in economic ways, that those um, often came into conflict with other kinds of ways of thinking about policy. Right. Um, and, that, and that that was sometimes politically constraining, particularly for, for Democrats, where you sort of find a, a conflict mm -hmm. in a lot of cases between you know, economists who are kind of... Uh, working under democratic administrations, kind of working within this center left space, um, but are coming into conflict with, uh, with, you know, people further left in the party who are kind of um, uh, approaching problems in different ways and yeah. uh, sometimes getting squeezed out. Yeah, I, I think like this is going to, I was thinking as I was reading it, that I bet you uh, one of the more, maybe one of the more surprising things a reader uh, might encounter is this idea that center left is 
uh, a driving force in your thesis as opposed to hearing about the Koch brothers or the University of Chicago or uh, or Austrian economics. It's kind of like you're laying this this like this social change hypothesis squarely on the backs of the very groups of people that you're not really taught to. They're supposed that they're kind of like not the sympathetic group to that right wing part. And so right. what what exactly is why? First of all, I wanted to know before we get into that, what exactly is this economic way of thinking? How is it different from a paradigm? How is it yeah. like what exactly? Because it sounds like you're referencing two things, the specific economic way of thinking, but then actually even more deeper than that, there's a general almost psychological phenomenon called a way of thinking or some something that meant I could tell it meant something. Uh, and I was wondering what that meant first. Yeah, I mean, so the way that I'm trying to use it in this in this book is to basically just talk about these sort of very simple concepts that you would use for kind of orienting yourselves to prop to problems. And so, you know, you you look at a prob a policy problem and you think about it in terms of you know incentives, in terms of trade offs, in terms of uh, you know efficiency or cost effectiveness. You know, if you're looking at something that's around around market governance, you know, you're trying, you're, you're thinking about externalities, you're thinking about, about, you know, how do you, how do you create a, a rule so that this market can work competitively, right. just those kinds of simple ways of, of, of approaching problems that you would learn pretty early. Um, yeah. And that, and that, you know, importantly, aren't just taught in economics pro programs, but also that you get exposed to if you were going to a public policy school, for example, or, mm, if you, right. you know, depending on what part of law that you might be exposed to in yeah. law school. Yeah. And so, you know, and so that can be, um, you know, it's obviously it's got some relationship to what people are doing in economics departments when they're doing research and stuff, but it's a little bit simpler than that. Yeah. And it can often, you know, kind of depart from that, right? It's not yeah. necessarily tracking very closely onto whatever's going on in the cutting edge of the, of the discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so is it, is this economic way of thinking just a collection of facts or something, or is it like, like why does it matter? What, what exactly? I mean, because it, it sounds like it's not policy recommendations and it's not research. You know, it's more like it's something else. I mean, what, 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 why, why is it important in your thesis? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, because it gives you sort of, an approach to thinking about what makes for good policy in a lot of different policy domains. And I think this is, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book and to convey is that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of in a lot of ways, it's so naturalized that even if you're, you know, not an economist, this is kind of a familiar way of thinking about policy problems and what makes for good policy. Right. Um, but you really see that this is, this is a way of approaching policy problems that kind of has a very specific historical origin and really comes to prominence at a particular mm. moment in time. And so, you know, so really in the 1960s, um, you know, you see these ideas uh, introduced, you know, they're kind of, some of it's coming from the Rand Corporation and then it's, it's coming into government for, uh, via people who are introducing this new budgeting system. Mm. Um, and and, and they're really developing, you know, they're really developing the idea that, okay, how do we think about what a good policy is? A good policy is one that cost effectively allows us to achieve our goals. 
And that means you know, thinking about policy in a way where you have these relatively identifiable goals that you can measure, um, you can think systematically and, and, and quantitatively about you know, how do we compare different potential paths to achieve that, and that that's really the toolkit for thinking about you know, what a good policy solution is. So there's a big piece of it, yeah, that's about cost effectiveness. There's that level of self-reflective kind of discussion happening in the 60s of like the good society is one that minimizes cost. Yeah. And so, I mean, so really where this is is coming from and where it's coming out of um, is it's coming out of the Rand Corporation in in, in the 1950s. And so, you know, I don't know how much people know about Rand in general. I mean, obviously, I don't know, at least I think of it today as like they do education and healthcare policy and stuff. But right at the time, it was very much a defense yeah. organization. It was funded by the Air Force. Mm. And so they're really focused on, um, you know, solving solving defense problems that were, you know, important in this, in this Cold War context. Mm. And what happened was that while Rand kind of started out being dominated by physical scientists and engineers, um, a lot of the kinds of questions they were interested in were sort of optimization problems. And so they really wanted to know, you know, how do we, you know, so, the, so the Air Force's pro- problems were things like, uh, you know, what's the optimal way for us to locate all our bases so that we are protected in the event that the Soviets have a first nuclear strike? And so they developed sure. these ways of, of providing answers to these questions. They work pretty well in, in, in defense contract in this defense context, um, but the folks who were there, we were like, well, these are these are you know, these are approaches to thinking about policy decisions that we can really right. use in a lot of different places. You know, this is right. something that we can apply to something like education policy or something like health policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of started in that space, um, and then it it came to Washington in defense, and then in 1965. Um, President Johnson said, okay, let's take this toolkit that we've been using at the Defense Department and let's apply it, you know, let's roll it out at all the federal agencies. So let's apply this to, you know, to the war on poverty. Let's apply this to um, to health policy and so So like if he's doing it with the war on poverty, like what what kinds of unique features are there that wouldn't be there, you know, hypothetically wouldn't have been there had Rand not done this? Like what, what are we talking about? Yeah, so um, so the specific the specific like tool through which this was brought in it was called the Planning Programming Budgeting System, uh, PPBS, mm-hmm. and basically what it was saying is that the way you should the way the government should budget is by uh, identifying again kind of what are the quantifiable goals of a particular agency, mm-hmm. you know, kind of systematically thinking about what are the different programs that might get us to those goals. Yeah. And then systematically comparing which, you know, based on the information we have, which do we think is going to be the most cost effective way of achieving those goals. Uh-huh. And so, um, so obviously, you know, you can kind of apply this to any policy area, but in anti-poverty policy, for example, um, it was introduced kind of in the context of a big conflict over what the war on poverty was actually going to look like. Yeah. So in the early days of the war on poverty, um, it was organized around this idea of kind of maximum feasible participation. And so it was sort of based in this theory that, you know, that the, the way you solve poverty is to, um, is to give poor people more political voice and then they will be able to participate in government and that will, and they'll be able to sort of articulate demands and so on. 
Okay. So that was a very different way of thinking about poverty. Yeah, right, right. And it, you know, and it was, you know, rolled out initially kind of before this PPBS system had been implemented. Huh. Um, and it created a lot of conflict, right? So it introduced, um, you know, all of a sudden you've got, uh, you've got people in, you know, poor people in cities are getting money to kind of organize and make demands on the mayors who are often Democratic um, mayors. It's creating political problems for the Johnson administration. Uh, you know, it's kind of fracturing along, along racial lines because, uh, you know, you're often talking about Black communities and, and, and white mayors. And, you know, I have literally this is a never big problem. Heard, I have literally never heard any of this before. Yeah. <laughs> so you read the book. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so 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 that was a very different way of thinking about about like what it is that you're trying to do when you right. want to solve poverty. Yeah. And you know, and the folks who were implementing this PPBS system, they were like, well, okay, the solution to poverty is a negative income tax, right? Like it's just uh, it makes sense, you know, that that the problem is people don't have enough money. You know, a uh, sort of a, a cost-effective way of solving that is that if you you know, if your income's below a certain point, right. we, we give you money. Right. And, you know, and within that policy space, there was a lot of conflict between these different groups of people because um, they just had different ways of thinking about what is the problem that we've got here? And like, what's our starting point for thinking about solutions? Is it as organized, this this like kind of other way of thinking? Mean, is it is this like this other way of thinking that's like, you know, giving voice to poor people and having to be participants in the democratic process and stuff? Like, is there a organized, like, you know, set of writers or things that I should be thinking of? Or is this just kind of like just a natural a common sense approach that just gets crowded out? No, I think it is like, I think on the one hand, like there are certain themes that are that, you know, there's certain like competing themes that pop up in different times and places. I think on, I think. On the other hand, some of it is pretty specific, right? Like the people who were making these arguments were very much in the context of this very specific political moment. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, they had their own coherent ideas, but it's not like it's a single framework that's a competing framework that's yeah. been passed along. Right, right. But I do think like the, you know, the places where you really see um, competition between this broadly economic approach to problems and, and these competing ways of thinking about it are um, often it's around uh, around claims that are made on the basis of rights, right? So, you know, you have a right to healthcare, you have, uh, you know, there was a push for welfare rights for a while in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, you have a right to a clean environment where right. the concept of rights kind of pushes you towards thinking in terms of absolutes and everybody should have access to it no matter what. And it kind of pushes you away from thinking of things in terms of costs and benefits and right, you know right. how do we think about doing this most most efficiently and so yeah so it's not so much like one set of thinkers necessarily or like a competing discipline but there are these particular types of political claims that offer they intentionally conflict they are in conflict um they're sociologically always. in conflict because they were like they were competing voices in a in a particular policy debate yeah, and I think right, like I think the the debates that you have around um, around universal health insurance, for example, yeah, right, and some of these like the ways that they played out uh, around 1970 or so, and obviously they've kind of evolved over time. But you know, at that time, 
the sort of the standard democratic position was we are going to uh, create universal health insurance. Um, you know, everybody is going to have access to it. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to involve cost sharing. It's going to be uh, healthcare as a, as a right. Right. Um, and, you know, and you had a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, liberal economists who were making the, the, the competing argument that that is very expensive and it's not a very cost effective way of doing things. Right. And if we can think about, well, you know, when does uh, cost sharing make sense? Like how much difference is it actually going to make? You know, when does, uh, you know, who should, who should we, you know, should we actually provide this to everybody or should people who can afford to pay for it themselves be paying for it themselves? Yeah. And so that's sort of a different way of thinking about the same problem uh-huh. um, that, you know, even when you had people who were still pretty supportive of, uh, you know, the idea that government should be helping to expand access to health insurance tended to point them in, in a different direction and kind of a conflicting direction sometimes. Right. 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 So, so, uh, um, uh, the political actors that were mm-hmm. kind of key in this, you mentioned, you know, presidential administrations, you mentioned Rand, is there like key, you know, can you tell, tell me a little bit more about these key kind of what you see is like, you know, at least if not pivotal kind of just like a sequence of maybe pivotal, you know, re, you know, that kind of added up to be pretty important for a change in the, you know, dominant, Kind yeah. of what would yeah. institutionalize? I mean, I think the big, um, you know, in terms of like how I sort of like follow these strands of, of, of thought into policy. Um, so a big piece of it is organized around, you know, two particular intellectual communities. And so one is, is these folks at RAND who were, um, you know, pretty, pretty tightly networked with academic economics, but we're, you know, but we're, we're based in RAND and we're kind of more policy oriented. And so they're a pretty coherent group who, who introduces um, a lot of these ideas. And then the other set of folks is a little bit of a looser network, but it's industrial organization economists. Mm. And so there's sort of a Harvard branch there and a Chicago branch. Um, and they're kind of, you know, they're entering policymaking you know, around the same time, it's during the 1960s, but uh, it's less of, it's a little bit more diffuse, you know, it's, it's more that you see, oh, here's a bunch of people who are coming in at the same time. So whereas the RAND people is, you really had a specific group of people who all came to the Defense Department and then kind of spread out from there. Um, the industrial organization story is more, you know, people start to become more tied to uh, to, to think tanks and you know, mm. Johnson appoints various people to positions in in different agencies who are you thinking of like which which kind, can you tell me some people you're thinking of yeah so um i think uh an early person was uh you know merton peck was uh on johnson's uh, council of economic advisors and and uh facilitates some of this conversation um you've got uh you know this is more on the on the i guess he kind of bridges the two in a way but uh Charles Schultz, who was, uh, you know, um, he was Johnson's, uh, director of Johnson's budget bureau, and then also chair of Carter's council of economic advisors. You know, he was at Brookings in between. So somebody who was really bridging the space of kind of broad cost effectiveness, thinking about policy, but also thinking about, about, you know, regulation, like how should we, how should we govern markets? Um, So those are the kinds of people that I'm talking about. So they're often 
people who are either primarily based in the policy world or who sort of move back and mm. forth a little bit right policy and academia right so it's like you know you've got the 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 uh the the, the welfare state poverty you know cost efficiency and then you've got so you've got you know whoever like the negative income tax i guess that's going to be freedmen and things like that is that what we're because i actually don't know yeah i mean well freedman was 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 making the case but you know kennedy's council of economic advisors was pretty pro negative income tax as well so it was a pretty bipartisan, bipartisan and then you've got io you've got the antitrust you've got the the emphasis being placed on on competition yeah yeah okay. and also sort of people who were who were you know, thinking about deregulation early on. So, you know, particularly in fields like transportation, right? But starting to think about so people like John Meyer, who was writing about uh, transportation, you know, how, how should transportation be, markets be regulated, you know, right. as early as the late 50s. But, you know, he and his students were starting to move into policy positions, you know, can, a decade later. Can, can you give me an example of um, uh, like a, uh, an, a kind of IO moment where something really significant uh, was was kind of implemented that's had long lasting ramifications and and maybe even speculate like what it replaced and what might be different. I know that's purely speculative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's um, you know on the IO side. I mean, there's a particular moment in terms of building those connections between academia and policy. And that is that um, Brookings creates a mm. program on government regulation in mm. the late 1960s. Um, and, so, and so, you know, really that's kind of happening in more of almost an academic space where they're funding workshops and they're publishing volumes and they're kind of building connections among, among um, academics who are, are broadly working on these questions but that becomes a source of, um, uh, you know, it, it really helps to consolidate a set of arguments around, uh, again, first transportation, but deregulation and transportation and some other areas, you know, that then kind of go on to have a lot of indirect, you know, influence along various channels later in the decade. Yeah. But I think the other place you see um, a very big concrete uh, impact. And this is one where you do sort of shade more into the Chicago space, right? And not just yeah. the kind of the, the centrist is um, in antitrust policy, right? Um, where you have uh, economists kind of become really much more influential in antitrust policy over the course of the 1970s and, uh, and are able to really um, redefine antitrust to be focusing more exclusively on uh, you know, thinking about its goal as being, you know, how do we promote markets that are working efficiently? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, as I was kind of reading, I was thinking, I had this thought in my head and it was kind of like a economic way of, of uh, it was like an economic way of thinking uh, basically, but I wanted to write it <laughs> by you. I was thinking, uh, well, maybe the reason that this economic way of reasoning dominated uh, is this. People choose their, so I was thinking, you know, people choose their beliefs 
uh, when the benefits of those beliefs, even at the deepest level, kind of, you know, they, they yeah. choose these beliefs when the benefits outweigh the costs. And so what, ex- what if the reason why the economic way of thinking dominates is because there really isn't a good, the alternatives were fundamentally weak I in, some, like, yeah. in some, yeah. some way. I mean, not weak in the sense of like a philosophical like the argument's not good, but there's something about it that that's weak. Because in the history of, you know, humanity, it's kind of like we're sort of in this, we're, we're, we're pretty deep in this like non-religious world set, you know, of, of a fairly mature, we think anyway, a relatively mature democratic society, you know, with over large land mass with, deeply heterogeneous people uh, competing with one another over these, uh, you know, over resources and power. So it's like, what if the reason this one comes up is because there just isn't anything? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, so I think, I think the piece of that where I would agree with you is I think there's things about this particular approach to thinking about problems that are really useful, right? And really good at solving problems, including in political contexts. And so I think, right, there's one way to read this whole story that, that uh, you know, that kind of says that, okay, well, you see what you've got in the, in the 60s and the early 70s is you've got this big expansion of government and it kind of creates this demand for thinking about how to control and manage it. And so, you know, you fairly reasonably have a, a set of tools emerge that are uh, useful for thinking about how do we rationalize it? You know, how do we, how do we make it work, uh, effectively and that, uh, you know, and that because you do have this expansion of government also kind of creates new pools of, of resources for, you know, supporting people who are doing that. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, is why you think about wh- why it ends up spreading. Um, you know, I think where I would, where I would, um, differ a little bit is that uh, I think that what it what it overlooks sometimes is that some of the things you know, many of the big many of the big things that that have been accomplished politically have kind of happened outside of these frameworks, and mm-hmm. so um, you know so if you want to if if your starting point for thinking about um, how should we uh, I don't know, I keep coming back to the, the, the healthcare example in my head, you know, if you're somebody who's interested in seeing, in seeing government play some role in expanding health insurance, um, well, you know, you could say, okay, well, the, the reasonable way to do this is to think about how to do it cost effectively. But if you look at historically, like how political things have actually been accomplished, it's often been outside of that framework. And it's often been for very, non-rational reasons. It's been right. kind of as a result of social movements have demanded something. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's been uh, because of, of you know, political alliances that are, that have very little rational component to them at all. And so, you know, so I think that that is the, the, the competing factor that's really, that's really moving things forward. Right. And so, yes, I mean, so I, I, so what are the blind spots of all, what are, what are the blind spots of what we're talking about? Like the economic way of thinking or economists or, or this kind of thing. What, what exactly is the most important things that are, that are not being caught or not recognized? So I think, um, 
I think you, I mean, I think to my mind, right? Like I'm coming to some of this who's explicitly a progressive, right? So I'm not like, yeah. you know, pretending to be uh, totally neutral about this. Um, you know, to my mind, some of it is in how ambitious you are in thinking about the starting points of, of policy spaces. Mm. And so, you know, so I think, for example, and, and sort of thinking very explicitly, not only about what kind of policy makes sense, but what kinds of policies actually uh, resonate with people, kind of can gain broad public support, can help you sort of create alliances or coalitions that will, right. that will support them and so on. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think climate is a really good example of this where, you know, I would be totally mm. thrilled if we could institute you know, some kind of cap and trade program. And that was actually, actually something that, that was able to be put into place. Right. But, right. you know, I think, I think politically, you know, several decades have shown that that's not really something that's been getting us somewhere. And so then right. I think you need to think about, okay, you know, maybe our starting point shouldn't be what is a, what is a uh, rationally sensible kind of solution to, uh, to too much CO2 production, I think the starting point has to be a political one right. of, you know, maybe we need to be thinking about things that might not be your first choice solution right. from an economic perspective, but that uh, have the potential to build a coalition that can get something done or that can really, um, uh, to give you a better path to actually achieving the the outcome that you want. Yeah, right, 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 right. What, um, well, so along those lines, you know, um, I was just, what do you think are, uh, I guess, what do you see as the most important for addressing any of these, in your opinion, like, I, I guess, I guess, it, is this correct? It, it, the mm -hmm. issue is not really the way of thinking. The, the issue is the implications that this is having for policy and people. Yeah, I think that's. That's right, yeah. right? So it's mm -hmm. like, it's not really, it's not. So, so in light of that, what do you see as the emerging problems that that are kind of like you know we're on some that you see is like we're on a path to a real collision climate would be an obvious one but are there other things that you sort of see that uh this actually is creating a a, cha a real policy challenge for people yeah i mean so i think right like you said so climate policy is one example um you know i think uh, antitrust policy is another one where you do see really interesting stuff happening. And um, I kind of go back and forth a little bit about like what my actual position is, is on all this, but, um, but, you know, clearly we've got some stuff going on, you know, that, 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 um, that you know, there's new kinds of corporate power that are, that are developing and that, that, you know, that we might want to think about addressing that are hard to address purely through the lens of, of thinking about antitrust in terms of, of consumer welfare. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that is something that is really locked into antitrust policy 
as a policy area that that kind of is what antitrust is about. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, people who sort of challenge that who are coming from outside of that space, um, you know, encounter a lot of, of barriers. And, you know, and there's, and there's reasonable arguments for why consumer welfare makes sense as, as like the, as the, like the lens to, to approach it through. Mm. Um, but, you know, but it's one of those spaces where I think it really makes sense to be considering, okay, well, what else is going on in this, uh, you know, in this, in this space of, of, of corporate conduct that we might want to think about that we can't really understand purely through that lens. Mm. And so like, that's another example where I think um, uh, it becomes harder to address problems that are going on because you have sort of um, defined the problem in a very specific way mm. that you know, sort of um, excludes, excludes other ways of, of, of framing the same. The well, same what's problem. the, da- what are the, if maybe it's, you know, the, this isn't the right word, but like, what are the damages that you have in mind that are not the consumer damages or, or associated with this antitrust? Like what, what am I not thinking of? Well, so, I mean, I think there's, I mean, I think there's two ways of thinking about it. I mean, I think one is that there's, there's issues that have arose that economists are starting to deal with. And I think this is stuff like labor market monopsony, right? Yeah. Where, there's, mm-hmm. where there's like a lot of research going on and yeah. not something that was really on the radar 10 years ago. People right, were saying, right. okay, well, this is something that, um, you know, and then I think that's hard enough to introduce because it's yeah. still kind of outside of the way that people have thought about policy, but it's yeah. still very much in that, in that economic space. And then I think yeah. you have the different set of issues, which, um, you know, maybe antitrust isn't the best, isn't the best way to deal with these, but things like, uh, uh, you know, um, what are the implications of, of Elon Musk being able to buy Twitter, right? You know, what does that actually mean if you've got sort of a big platform that's a, that's a public space and it kind of plays this democratic role, um, and, you know, might have certainly has some kind of implications for the public sphere, you know, might have, might have other kinds of political implications, yeah. But there's really no way to talk about that kind of problem yeah. within within the same sort of framework. Right. So maybe right. those are kind of two different directions you could think about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like, you know, it's funny. It, it's, it, there doesn't, you're not, again, it, it's making me think like, what is the other way of, it, what is the other way of thinking that it's crowding out? And, and, and it's like, I don't know how to articulate what you just said. Like, what do I, what am I supposed to be worried about with Musk being, uh, or is it the, the disproportionate influence of one person? But it's like, that doesn't fit into a, there's nothing to quantify, you know? No, like, and I think you're, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's not one alternative way of, of conceptualizing yeah. problems that you can say that fits a lot of different spaces equally well. And I think in specific cases, you could, you could say, well, what are the specific, um, you know, what are the specific things that you might be concerned about, right? So mm-hmm. is it that we want to, um, you know, is it that we want to uh, ensure that, you know, that there are certain ground rules for like how how speech is set up within within platforms that have, you know, that, that have access to it, that, are, that serve a certain number of people or that, that serve a certain um, size of, you know, that control yeah. a certain amount of the public sphere Right. Um, you know, in other contexts, it might be about um, political influence in one way or another. You know, so I think I think and I think that's part of partly why you know, I think that's part of the 
power of economics, right? Is it does have this really useful framework that you can apply to a lot of different contexts. Yeah. And that is very coherent and, um, and flexible at the same time. And so I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see one coherent alternative emerging. I think it's going to yeah. be more ad hoc and sort of look different in, in different yeah. sorts of spaces. Yeah. 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 Well, um, before we end, this is really, uh, you know, this is all kind of new for me to, uh, read in this way. I, you know, I, I, um, got into economics because I read Gary Becker's Nobel prize speech on mm -hmm. the economic way of thinking mm -hmm. titled the economic way of thinking and got, uh, so much of my so much of my career has been focused on, uh, things that you could apply that way of thinking to that you didn't ordinarily like sex, yeah. sex was a big yeah. part of it, abortion policy and, and, uh, sex work and, uh, marriage markets and, um, as well as drugs. It's kind of like, you know, it's, is it, it was really, so it's kind of like I, as I was reading the book, looking to the, reading the book and talking to you, I, I just was kind of like thinking how difficult it is for me to pry it back, <laughs> you know, because, uh, I, I don't know exactly where it, it's so now kind of deep in the, the soil, you know, yeah. I don't know how to, ref I don't, because your book is sort of asking, it has this mirror piece to it, but it's so focused on history and it's so focused on social policy and social change that, but I keep seeing myself in it. And I realize like, I don't know how to let go of some of this even if I wanted to, it's just real deep into the, once you're in it, the, for the, I, for me, it's really hard to not think this way. Yeah. And I think, right. Like on the one hand, this is just like how academic training works, right? Like by yeah. the time you've done a PhD, you're sort of honed in on a particular way of seeing the world. And that just is kind of um, locked in, but, you know, but I also like, I totally get the appeal, right? Like the, the Becker models and like why it's really yeah. intellectually compelling to think, okay, well, like, how can we extend this to different places? And how can this provide insights into different sorts of, you know, behavioral domains where, you know, we hadn't, we hadn't conceptualized problems that way before. Um, no, so, I mean, yeah, the, the, the same things could be said about Becker's crime model that's in your book. His 1968 article on crime and punishment is all, and it's an efficiency paper. It's actually, right. you know, people think it's like a behavioral paper about, deterrence and and but it's really about how can we reduce crime at lowest cost you know and the idea is that you know crime has cost to the victims and the police resources and there's all this stuff in it that became extremely influential like uh the idea that the the criminal is rational and uh and so if you have and they respond to fines and so if it's a very low probability event that you're going to catch them. You've got to make the penalty extremely high, mm -hmm. you know? So he, he's got this famous footnote where he says, you know, uh, in Vietnam, what they did, I mean, he wasn't advocating for this. He was using it as an illustration, but it was like in Vietnam, uh, speculators in the rice market would have their hands cut off. You know, yeah. you never could catch these guys, but if you caught them, they would, you know, do it. And it, it's like, again, it's, it's like this thing with, the way of reasoning you're, you're, you're left going, is this what we're supposed to be doing or is this the way it is? And like, where, what exactly is the distinction? This is that positive normative piece that 
you're left going. Um, and it's like, I could imagine the same kind of book being written here, thinking like an economist and, and, and going through Becker and, and then sort of saying at the exact same time as there's the war on crime, the United States engages in its really extremely disruptive experiment with putting people in prison and, uh, and lengthening sentences on lots of things. And, um, and it's like, I just wondered as I was re reading it, I was like, I wonder if some of what Elizabeth's talking about actually was kind of going on, like at so many parts of society, like at the exact same time uh, of this influence of the economic way of thinking of like crime policy, just like yeah. lengthen the sentences, deter the crimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, like I haven't dug into crime policy specifically. So, you know, I don't want to say more than I can actually speak yeah. to, but I do like strongly suspect that there is a parallel story that you could tell within the space of, of, you know, crime policy at the, you know, at the federal level or at the state level. And I guess, you know, and again, and sort of like you're saying, well, okay, so what's the alternative, right? Like if this is, this is, this is a useful way of thinking about um, you know, what the incentives are for people, what the deterrents are, you know, how should we think about what the, what the consequences should be in order to, to deter crime? You know, I think what it kind of misses is then, well, what are those second order effects that maybe yeah. go beyond that? So, you know, yeah, you could be thinking about what you know, is a particular kind of punishment going to be enough to deter individuals from, yeah. from carrying out a crime, but then what's like the broader effects on the social fabric of, okay, we've got, you know, whatever percent of the of the population in prison and you know and and, and what are the what are the broader consequences of, of that if we decide that that's sort of like the optimal way of of you know of, of punishing people i i wonder if the success of the economic way of thinking is the feeling that this is something we can all agree on like yeah we can, all, we can all agree on scarcity so the, the way the economist frames it you know it's like uh, that, that he kind of compels you and says, you know, scarcity is the fundamental problem of all uh, of human societies and uh, we must solve it. Right. And so, and then that kind of leads to, you know, and so there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, you know, that's contained even in that statement that that's could be disputed, but like, um, but it's like, as I'm thinking to myself, well, how would you challenge the economic way of thinking when it has so much widespread acceptance, it would, it seems like it would require a moral vision that like we all agreed on. And that's kind of the fundamental problem is like, we don't agree on any one story right? about who we are and uh, who we are and, and what, what good means and what bad means. It's like right. nothing is agreed on. I mean, you definitely see that in the last week, you know, it's like the, mm -hmm. the deep, deep disagreements. And I just wonder, like, how I, it's, it's like, I just wonder if like <clears throat> economics steps in and just pretends that this is the thing that it can, you know, it's like this is overstating it, but economics kind of steps in and says, well, we're just kind of going to skirt that. Yeah, we're going no, to skirt that. I mean, you can see this in Becker's yeah. writings with Stigler, uh, the Gustavus known as Disputatum. This, Becker, Becker says this explicitly in his Nobel Prize speech that, the, the, the economic way of thinking says preferences don't change. And, and, you know, throughout his writings, he says, and we're not going to be the ones to talk about preferences. Right. That's what the psychologist does, or that's what, you know, but then the thing is like all of the conclusions are based on the preferences. 
I mean, the whole idea of a deadweight loss is based on a demand curve and where you are, you know, where resources are relative to some, you know, some allocative inefficiency is based on whether or not a person's willing, you know, it's all gets into these the apparatus that comes out of, you know, preferences and, and, you know, utility and all this stuff. And so I just wonder like what, how, what can you do as a, in a heterogeneous society when nobody can agree on who we are and what is it mean to be a good society or like whatever. I mean, I think you're totally right. That like, that's a big piece of, of, of what, you know, why economics works, right? Like in, in policy kind of spaces is it gives you this language for talking across other kinds of value differences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that, yeah, you see that there's like a different sort of historical moments where, um, you know, people who are not kind of working within a broadly economic framework, you know, might, people who are on the left or right might not be able to talk to each other at all. But people who are, you know, but economists who are working within the policy spaces, you know, the people on the left and the people on the right, they might not agree on policy recommendations, but they still have kind of a common language for right. debating things out, right? They know right. what the what their terms of, of debate are. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think, you know, there's ways in which that is really important just for being able to get things done. But mm-hmm. I do think, you know, that like, uh, yeah, I, I don't love that our society is so polarized, but yeah. I also think that it's okay that we have you know, value differences. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. sometimes those fundamental differences are just the things that are going to get fought out in political spaces. Right. Um, and, right. you know, and we don't necessarily have to all have the same fundamental values and, and orientations. And so, yeah. you know, really, I think being, you know, it, like what I would hope is one takeaway from this is just kind of getting people to think about, um, you know, when are these sort of neutral tools for thinking about policy truly neutral and and when are they actually kind of value choices of their own and if they are value choices of their own why that value and not some other value you know and i think that's the case regardless of what your political starting point is right is that is is really to to push people to think about you know what are the things we value and then you know what are the tools that we can think about for getting there yeah yeah well, it is really, uh, this has been really, uh, I'm going to be thinking about our conversation in your book for a long time. Uh, this book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy by Elizabeth Pop Berman, uh, Associate Professor of Organizational Studies at University of Michigan. Just came out Princeton University Press. Uh, highly recommend it for anyone interested in economics, uh, public policy, uh, intellectual history. Uh, and the United States. Um, thanks so much for uh, for me talking to me, Elizabeth. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really, you know, I appreciate your willingness to engage, and uh, it was a really fun conversation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.